There you go. Four punch, five punch, six punch combination. Body shot, body shot. Bang, 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 bang. Telling him not to counter punch. Welcome, fight fans. It's time for the main event of the week. It's the Fight City Podcast. This is episode 14 with your host, Alden Kodash, soon to be joined by Fight City senior uh, feature writer, Jamie Rebner, and later on, the editor-in-chief of the Fight City, Michael Carbert. We're going to discuss some of the biggest events of this last week, including the big, shocking fourth-round knockout upset victory by Andrew Cancio against WBA titleist at 130, Alberto Machado. We'll also see the WBA quote-unquote super champion, Gervonta Davis. We'll discuss his first-round knockout victory over Hugo Ruiz that took place on the main event of a Showtime card over in California. We'll also be discussing Jose Ramirez's uh, struggle but majority decision victory over Jose Zepeda, also in California. And we will talk about the undercard of the Tank Davis fight in which Erickson Lubin became the first man to stop Ishay Smith in the fourth round of their fight. Also going to be discussing some of the biggest pieces on thefightcity.com, including a look back at Mike Tyson versus James Buster Douglas, the biggest upset in the history of the sport, which took place on February 11th. And thefightcity.com has a recap article summarizing the nearly 30-year anniversary of this shocking outcome, and we'll also be discussing the top 12 greatest Philadelphia fighters of all time. All of this to come on the Fight City Podcast episode 14, so stay tuned, Fight Fans. And next up, we have Jamie Rebner, another Fight City writer, uh, feature writer for the FightCity.com. How are you tonight, Jamie? Good, how are you? Good, good. So we had a pretty big weekend of boxing, a lot of Sunday night boxing. Um, Of course, Saturday night we had Tank Davis versus Hugo Ruiz, but the fight I really want to talk about on the undercard was Erickson Lubin and Ishay Smith. We had Erickson Hammer Lubin with a huge fourth-round stoppage of Ishay Smith, putting himself back into 154-pound title contention after his devastating first-round knockout loss to Charlo. Lubin becomes the first man to knock out Ishay Smith, former world champion. What did you make of this performance? Uh, I think it was it was a necessary performance for him. I mean, like you said, he, he was coming off two fights ago as a devastating loss, and he obviously got back in the win column against Silverio Ortiz. But I think this was you know a name that he needed to get through convincingly to show that he's really at the top of the of, of his weight class. I mean, Ishe Smith is a veteran of the sport, has been competing for many years. You know, is someone that you know, has a pretty recognizable name, at least among hardcore fans. So I think his performance was kind of what he needed to do and, and what I was more or less expecting. Like he's he's a young, talented kid. And as good as E.J. Smith is, I mean, he was never, uh, I don't I don't believe, a, a world champion for very long if he was that. So I think it's like, you know, a, a veteran against a young guy. The young guy needs to do what he has to do. So I, I was impressed with his performance in that sense. Yeah, a, a world champion Smith was in 2013 uh, for one fight. He won a title against Cornelius Bundridge, K9 Bundridge for what that's worth. Lost it in his next fight against Carlos Molina. But even so, I really think this was the kind of fight Lubin needed before getting in the rig with Jermel Charlo. You know, an older, past his prime, former world champion like Smith. Um, and hopefully this kind of victory, although it's a little bit overdue, it bolsters the 23-year-old's confidence as he looks forward to bigger and better fights in a pretty loaded 154-pound division. Um, we've seen knockouts permanently damage fighters. I'm thinking Fernando Vargas's knockout loss to Felix Trinidad, although Vargas took significantly more punishment against Trinidad than, um, than Lubin took. But, um, how do, you, how do you think the rest of Lubin's career is going to play out, given the fact that he was put his was put on notice and had his chin check so early in his career? Well, I mean, that's that's the thing. You know, it's about being put another in against other dangerous guys. Like, um, 
you know, to, to test if, if that was just like, you know, a one-off performance or if he does have, you know, more, I guess, chin, chin questions in that sense, but will only tell as he continues to step up his opposition. And, and I mean, he's, he's super young. So, I mean, in his career, there's, there's no reason to think why he doesn't have an opportunity to, you know, let, let that one knockout loss be that one knockout loss. But I mean, that's the thing. It's hard to tell. There have been fighters that have, have never recovered, but then there have been fighters that have been knocked out and, and, you know, managed to, you know, make it a blip in their otherwise successful career. So it really depends. I think it really depends on the opposition he decides to face. Like you don't want to rush him in against big punchers too soon, obviously, which I think, you know, E.J. Smith was not one, so it made sense yeah. in that in that way. But but you don't want to, you know, shy away from it either. So it's, it's a tricky game that the that the people in charge of his career are going to have to make the, you know, the right calculated moves to, to keep moving him in the, right, in the right direction, but also give him a chance to continue to gain his confidence back because that that's, takes some time. Uh, you know, it's not just one or two fights until you get back to where you were as an undefeated fighter, at least in terms of confidence. Definitely. Um, we're going to be looking I forward want, to seeing. I want to add one thing. Oh, absolutely. Um, before we continue, I think E.J. Smith just, you know, announced on Twitter that he is deciding to call it a career mm-hmm. uh, after, after, you know, after this stoppage, stoppage loss. But so do you have any, anything to say kind of like, uh, parting shots on his career type of thing? Like, uh, what did you think of him throughout, throughout his time in the game? Well, you know, Isha Smith, I- I'm a little bit biased towards participants on The Contender. <laughs> I-, I just right. viewed that TV series as a bit of a joke and never really could take guys like Peter Manfredo or Sergio Mora or or even Isha Smith too seriously uh, as they progressed. Uh, but, you know, Isha Smith made the most of it. I mean, he he won a world championship, albeit against right. K-9 Bundridge. Uh, he was a good journeyman. He, he did hold current WBC junior middleweight champion Tony Harrison to a split decision not too long ago um and and i think he was very respectful in defeat you see a video of him on twitter giving erickson lubin uh some pointers going forward uh despite the fact that he was just knocked out by him uh i think earlier that night um i think he's a very gracious champion and i i hope he participates in the sport in some manner in his retirement um yeah, that, that's pretty much all I have to say about him. Um, never really paid yeah. too much attention to him, but you know, I think I, I wish him the best. No, for sure, and, and he does have a, a nice piece of history to his name, becoming being the only the first Las Vegas-born fighter to capture a world title. I think mm. so. I mean, it's always it's always good, and and I think I like I liked about him was that he was you know he he kind of said it like it is. He never you know minced his words when it came to to interviews and discussing fighters or or fights in particular. So I always thought that was you know. Uh, a nice aspect to see because sometimes you know fighters they don't all you know they they can you know try to be politically correct in some ways oftentimes not but i always liked how he was kind of real in that sense yeah i'm with you so uh in in terms of a fighter who's another class act let's talk about jose ramirez in his title defense over jose zapeda on sunday at the save mart center in fresno california he brought over fourteen thousand attendants in attendance to the save mart center to help raise money for his ko cancer effort uh, a portion of all ticket sales were donated to the community cancer institute in central valley california and I was told, or I read rather, that a thousand tickets were donated to the Community Cancer Institute patients and their families to watch Jose Ramirez struggle, but perform uh, in a very exciting manner and, and pull out a close majority decision over a very game Jose Zapata. What was your take on that performance? I mean, I didn't know that about uh, in terms of his, uh, his. I knew a bit about his charity work, but that's definitely uh, commendable. Yeah. In terms of his performance, I mean. I didn't think Zapata would trouble him as much as he did, to be honest. Like, I hadn't heard much of Zapata beforehand. And, you know, Jose Ramirez is, is the, the A-side and in, in was the A-side in this matchup. So I think the fact that he gave him some difficulty in the early rounds with his, you know, more slick boxing style, I, I don't know if that's just a one-time deal again or, or that's something to kind of be on the lookout for Ramirez's career. You know, like, he's, he's, he's talented, he's undefeated, but... I kind of it makes me a bit skeptical to be honest in terms of how high his ceiling is if he's had difficulties with with that type of fighter going forward at least. 
Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel the same way. Zepeda, he's, he's an awkward southpaw. His only loss came after a dislocated shoulder against Terry Flanagan. Uh, but he did seem a little bit too limited, at least uh, to be a real world-class fighter that Ramirez should be in such a close fight against. And Zepeda, as I mentioned, he's awkward. He relies on a lot of lateral movement and unorthodox punches, but Ramirez had a lot of difficulties finding him in the first half, and it took those body shots in about the eighth round to really put Zepeda in punching range for Ramirez. And if Ramirez is struggling to find his distance against Southpaws, I think two of the best fighters at 140, Josh Josh Taylor and um, uh, and uh, Regis Progre, are going to be his worst nightmare. You know, two guys that I think uh, I would favor them already to beat Ramirez, it just kind of reinforces that notion that Ramirez might not be the top guy at 140. Right. And like, I mean, those are good fighters. So me not being the top guy is no, it's not, doesn't discredit him to an extent, but I guess in terms of knowing how high he can go and like being a champion in multiple weight classes for the rest of his career, like it's, I mean, it, it doesn't necessarily bode well if he's not the top guy or it might not be the top guy in his current division. But I mean, it's interesting to see how he'll develop. I, I kind of, I kind of see him, maybe this is a, a bit of a stretch, but let me know what you think in terms of a, a comparison to other pros. Uh, I kind of see him a bit like Juan Diaz in the sense mm. that he he's swarming, he's pressure, he puts pressure on you, throws a lot of punches, works the body well. But, but I don't know if that's like, you know, does that mean he's going to be a multiple division champion or or not like i kind of i don't really think so but you know who knows like it's it's maybe he can continue to develop add some more wrinkles to his game and and then that might put him over the edge but i think he's going to need that if he wants to become undisputed at 140 or or any weight classes down the road yeah i I mean the juan diaz possibly in terms of his career trajectory and in terms of being entertaining but ultimately kind of a stepping stone journeyman type fighter but i think he hits harder than juan diaz he's he hits really hard to the body actually he Gained a lot of notoriety with his body punching attack that knocked out the likes of Mike Reed when he was on the way up. Um, but um, I, I don't see him as the same kind of punching machine that Juan Diaz was. Diaz just he just laid the heat on you, and uh, although he right. didn't hit very hard, he would wear you out with activity. Uh, but I mean, certainly in terms of their career trajectory, it doesn't seem like Jose Ramirez has the stuff to be a world class talent, a, a pound for pounder. Uh, uh, unified champion even um, but he's definitely entertaining and in this effort in his majority decision when he came from behind and uh, ultimately pulled out a victory by close but uh, pretty clear margins um, Sunday same day we also had a zone card that featured Andrew Cancio's shocking upset victory over Alberto Machado so uh, Andrew Cancio after his knockout loss to Joseph Diaz in 2016 he, he was off for a little bit and and uh, just, I think, his third fight in his comeback, he gets the victory of his life, winning the regular WBA 130-pound title with the fourth-round knockout over Alberto Machado, who, you know, if you are familiar with the story, for all intensive purposes, should be the super champion at WBA <laughs> because he won the super WBA champion when he knocked out Jezreel Corrales. And all of a sudden, Tank Davis has that title uh, because he beat a featherweight last year. <laughs> Yeah. It's more nonsense when it comes to the title picture, of course. Yep. Uh, WBA and their corruption, it never ends, does it? <laughs> yeah, I thought this was in terms of, I mean, definitely a major upset. Alberto Machado was undefeated, so it never obviously lost. And, and Cancio, you know, he was knocked down early in the fight, got back up and, and managed to, you know, start to close the distance and connect on Machado and ultimately, you know, everything started with that body shot knockdown. So at that point, did you think like the upset was, was in the making or you thought Machado would be able to, to, to turn the tide? So, I mean, in the first round, I, I thought Machado was going to march to victory because, you know, I view Machado as, uh, one of the most, uh, menacing punchers and, and, um, uh, one one of the best fighters that I, I viewed him as one of the best fighters at 130, but I thought the writing was on the wall in around the third round when Machado was hurt by that left hook. He just didn't seem strong enough to fend off Andrew Cancio, and which is unusual because Machado has developed direct has developed a reputation as a knockout puncher uh, with knockouts over Yondale Evans and uh, Jezreel Corrales. You know, I thought he was one of these guys to beat at 130, and it just looked like he was. Um, 
just drained by the attack to the body and, and taken out quickly. I was very surprised that he wasn't able to recover, or find any other uh, plan B to fend off Andrew Cancio. That was a uh, uh, very shocking upset, in my opinion. Yeah, and credit to Cancio for, for seizing the opportunity, sensing he was hurt, his opponent was hurt, and, and going after it, finishing the job, you know, because uh, you never know. You leave a guy off the hook, and a round or two it is all it takes for him to recover. So I definitely give him kudos for that. And I, I did hear, you know, I read that um, Machado afterwards said he just felt weak and, and maybe he, it's time for him to, to move up in weight. So it's hard to really um, uh, tell if that's the truth, you know, because the fight just happened. Sometimes they need to rethink it a bit. But but do you think he stays at, at junior lightweight? Well, if that's the case, I definitely think he should move up. I mean, he's 5'10", 72-inch reach. You know, he's got the size to be menacing at 135. Uh, he did look weak now that you mentioned that. I mean, he wasn't able to tie up Cancio in the fourth round after getting knocked down by that body shot. He uh, he wasn't able to fend him off uh, very well at all. But, I mean, if he has the kind of power that he showed at 130, I don't think that's going to fade if he goes up five pounds in weight. I think it's only going to benefit him if he's actually killing himself that much to to make 130. It kind of reminds me, you know, if this is the case and not just an excuse of uh, Miguel Cotto at 140 pounds, you know, 140, he had a very questionable chin. He was almost knocked out by Demarcus Corley in their fight. He was almost knocked out by Ricardo Torres in their fight. Uh, 147, you know, he took a pretty good punch. He took an even better punch at 154. Uh, I think it's just a matter of, maybe of Machado filling out into his more natural frame and becoming stronger because of it. Right. That makes a lot of sense. Very possible. Definitely. So um, now we'll talk about Tank Davis, who is far too big for his weight, in my opinion, and, and fights guys that are, well, not even 130 pounds. So <laughs> on Saturday, he got his second knockout against a blown up featherweight, former Super Bantamweight champion Hugo Ruiz, who is making his 130-pound debut just weeks, literally just weeks after his last bout uh, on the Pacquiao-Broner undercard. What do you think of Tank Davis that night, first-round knockout? I mean, like, he did what he should do. It's <laughs> uh, I don't think anyone was expecting him to struggle with Hugo Ruiz by any stretch. So getting in there, getting the first-round knockout, you know, it's... I don't know how much credit it deserves, to be honest. Like he was ready to face Abner Maris, who was a you know a top contender in the division for many years. So you'd think he was focused and and in shape, and and you know he took that out on Ruiz. I mean, credit to Ruiz Ruiz for stepping in there, obviously on on short notice. But to me, it's just like you know, it's like this doesn't really add too much to Davis's stock, and it's all about what he goes on for the rest of the year. I know. He's obviously talking about staying active, but just this morning I heard he's planning on fighting tension, yeah. the same guy that Mayweather <laughs> took on an exhibition bout. So it's like you got to question these career moves. I mean, he's had legal issues with his promoter. He, uh, he's had uh, out of the ring issues. Like a lot of, I know he's talented and I know he's young, but like there comes a time where your time still slips away. And like, especially if you're not going to be active, you know, the few fights a year that you have, they have to count, you know, and I know there's nothing he could do about it in this case because it wasn't his in his control, but I just think that's important going forward. Well, I mean, I, th I think it's clear that we'd all rather see him up against Abner Mares, but let's not be mistaken. Abner Mares is another featherweight who I think would be making his 130-pound debut against Tank Davis if it wasn't for his detached right. retina injury. And Abner Mares not only is a featherweight that's moving up in weight, he's a featherweight that was knocked out by Johnny Gonzalez in the first round. So a featherweight uh, you know, that's had his chin tested at lower weight classes. Um, I, I think Tank Davis is, uh, I, I think Floyd Mayweather needs to get serious about having Davis realize his potential and not kind of uh, pawn him off as another source of, uh, of, of money and, and having him face his former farce partner tension and in another April exhibition in Japan. Uh, what should be mentioned though, is Mayweather did say that he'll fight tension in April most likely, and then he'll fight his real fight in May. I uh, didn't give a name for who he will be fighting in May, but I think he is in definite need of either a unification fight or a real top-level opponent at 130, certainly not guys that are moving up from 126. For sure, and like that's the thing. It's, it's who's that opponent. Like, you know... Mayweather himself has made it clear through his actions as words like there's no rush when it comes to taking on the best guys like I mean he, he's done it so 
I'm just a question, and I'm hopeful that it's not the case, but I hope he doesn't guide Tank Davis in in the same way he finished his career. I mean, early on, Mm. Mayweather obviously took on tremendous opposition and and, and for for a stretch there, you know, in the lighter, when he was a lighter weight class fighter. But I just hope that, like, Davis is, you know, his competition steps up. Like, he's kind of been stagnant for the past few years, like, just – you know, hasn't really faced anyone really notable aside from maybe Jose Sniper Pedraza, really. Like, I just, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, if he moves up to 135, there's there's Lomachenko, but, you know, call me crazy. I don't see that fight happening anytime soon. <laughs> I think in their best interest, that fight shouldn't be happening anytime soon. I think Lomachenko would uh, outbox him with, with rather, with, uh, with ease, in my opinion. But, you know, of course, Tank Davis is a puncher, and there's a lot of people that are going to, going to want to see a puncher no matter who he's up against just because of the fact that uh, he's got that uh, shot ending power at any point in the fight but yeah i know it's it's i just think it's we have to keep a close eye and and i i hope that uh if they do name some opponents they're at least highly touted yep Definitely. I would love to see him fight Tevin Farmer in his next fight in the unification. Of course, Farmer's been calling for that fight for a long time. Very recently, though, in December, uh, after his victory on the undercard of Canelo versus Rocky Fielding, he stayed in the press conference that he was done with Cervante Davis. He was he was done with the prospect of it because apparently Leonard Ellerby said if that fight's going to happen, it's going to be on Showtime, whereas Tevin Farmer is quite content with his DAZN deal with... Um, with Eddie Hearn and Matchroom uh, because they give him fights. He fights recently. He's going to be fighting in Philadelphia in March. Um, you know, he's fighting a lot more frequently than Tank Davis. Of course, not making as much money. Tank Davis in his first main event made a million dollars for less than three minutes of work. But, you know, I think Tevin Farmer is, is on the legacy path, although he might not be, you know, on the same lucrative path as Tank Davis. If, you know, if they both keep it up the way they're going, we're going to be remembering Tevin Farmer uh, in 10 years from now a lot more than we will Tank Davis, potentially. Right. That's that's a good point. Yeah. Um, well, it was a pretty dynamic week of boxing. I'm glad that you were here to discuss it with us, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. So i uh, hoping to hear more of you. Thank you very much, and I'm glad to come on anytime. Absolutely. That's Jamie Rebner, feature writer for thefightcity.com. And next up, we have the editor-in-chief of thefightcity.com, Michael Carbert, here with us. How are you tonight, Michael? I'm doing well, Alden. How are you? Doing really well. And uh, we are an hour and a half away from exiting the biggest upset, the anniversary of the biggest upset in sports history, in my opinion. February 11th, 1990 in the Tokyo Dome, James Buster Douglas, a 42-1 to underdog, defeated the baddest man on the planet, Mike Tyson. And thefightcity.com has a article about it on the site. Highly encourage everyone to check it out. Uh, what is, <laughs> what's your take on this monumental event in history? Well, it's uh, it's an anniversary that we uh, the site uh, marks every year. Um, we have an in-depth report on the fight itself, and then tomorrow we'll also feature an excellent article by Elliot McCormick uh, entitled "The Meaning of Douglas Tyson," uh, where he goes in depth about about the significance of the fight and how that that fight really in a way marked the end of Mike Tyson as a real uh, the, the the real Mike Tyson the Mike Tyson that everybody remembers so vividly that was kind of the end of that era of of kid dynamite of iron mike of the real vicious destroyer the baddest man on the planet. Baddest, exactly. Baddest man on the planet. But the myth persisted for years. It, it refused to die. And it resulted in, of course, huge paydays for, for Tyson and other fighters. And so Elliot uh, really does an excellent job of exploring why that was. And how the image of Mike Tyson eclipsed the real person. Um and 
it's a it's a really excellent essay, and that'll be up on the site tomorrow. Um, after it's almost thirty years. Next year will be thirty years. Correct me if I'm wrong. Since, That's right. Yeah, and uh, wow, it's it's hard to believe the time has gone so fast, but. It has to be regarded as the biggest upset in the sport because I can't, I can't recall any other fight that had such massive shockwaves that, that surprised so many people. No one, absolutely nobody, gave James Buster Douglas a serious shot of winning that fight. And except for his mother. Yeah. Important to note. Yeah, well, except for the people. Yeah, well. And the death of, of, of his mother definitely inspired Douglas. He was never um, that good. One could argue he was never as sharp, never as focused uh, before or after. Um, but uh, all you can say is that it, it was a it was a result that absolutely nobody saw coming. And um, and I, I it's hard to imagine um, a high profile uh, match in the in the near future. Coming even close uh, in terms of in terms of a, a Titanic upset. I mean, it's the upset by which all others have to be measured, and um, and it was a turning point in the history of the heavyweight division. Absolutely, um, Douglas's reign was short lived, but uh, from from Douglas's victory, soon came Evander Holyfield. Soon came a whole slew of heavyweights that emerged after Tyson became champion before in a relatively weak heavyweight division, knocking out Trevor Burbick to win the title, unifying against uh, James Bonecrusher Smith, Tony Tucker. You know, that was a relatively weak post Larry Holmes era of heavyweight boxing to be succeeded by one of the strongest heavyweight divisions since today's heavyweight division. <laughs> you know, Riddick Bowe, Evander Holyfield, Lennox Lewis, Michael Moore, comebacking George Foreman, and even Mike Tyson in his post-prison comeback. You know, he he was very interesting for a little bit. But uh, you're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, this was a big turning stone for the heavyweight division. And, uh, you know, when you, when you first think about it, Jim Lampley announced this as the biggest upset in, in the heavyweight, in heavyweight uh, championship fights. And then Larry Merchant said, I beg to say this is the biggest upset in boxing. Is this the biggest upset in sports history? I mean, where do you draw the line? This fight was just so monumental. Oh, I don't feel uh, I don't feel capable of passing judgment on that in terms of the entirety of, of sports. But <laughs> I mean, how many how many sporting events uh, can you remember so vividly because they shocked you? I mean, so so profoundly. I mean, there's not that many. Um, and I can remember exactly where I was when I first heard the news that Tyson had lost. And the person who told me, I didn't believe them. I thought they were joking. Um, <laughs> and so uh, no doubt there's, there's plenty of up upsets that are also as vivid and profound in, in sports. Um, but, but in terms of uh, boxing history, the, the key thing to remember is that Mike Tyson at that point in time was invincible. He was viewed as the absolute dominant ruler of the heavyweight division. And the, the fight that immediately comes to mind that I would compare to it would be when uh, Cassius Clay, um, who would later become, soon after become Muhammad Ali, uh, won over Sonny Liston. And yeah. while the odds, the official odds are not as long, I believe uh, Ali or Clay at that time was an eight or nine to one underdog, whereas Buster Douglas was 42 to one. Yeah. Uh, it's the it's the image, the aura of the champion that absolutely nobody or very few people uh, thought was at all susceptible to, de to defeat. I mean, Sonny Liston had just demolished Floyd Patterson, not once, but twice. In the same round. Exactly. In, the, in, in both times in the same round, just demolished him. And previous to that, he had, he had uh, 
just run roughshod over the division. He he beat all the top contenders that the champion Floyd Patterson had failed to to take on. And so again, it was similar in that you had a champion that everybody regarded as just well, he's just too good, he's too powerful, um, he's too intimidating, he's just too much. And uh, most people were predicting an early knockout win for Liston, and most people were predicting an early knockout win for Mike Tyson. So, uh, again, it's this aura of the invincible champion, um, which which the underdog uh, destroys. And um, there are, of course, uh, examples of that all through boxing history. But I think the key thing is, it wasn't even that big a fight. That's how, that's how, um, you know, that's how much everyone underestimated Buster Douglas, that the match wasn't even, you know, people, people were shrugging their shoulders at it. They weren't really even that who interested. Was, who was going to go to Tokyo to cover the fight? Wasn't that what uh, Ron Borges said was the big question going into the fight? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, it, it was just, the outcome was, was, you know, not even a question. Um, so that's, you know, it's the, it's the context of it that beyond just the odds that make it uh, the biggest upset in boxing history. And uh, I think that goes without question. I, I think it's without question that it's the biggest upset in boxing history, but to compare it to Sonny Liston, there are some parallels there, but the thing about Sonny Liston is, you know, he was on the up and up after beating Patterson twice. You know, he had all the momentum on his side. And on the surface, on paper, it looked like Tyson did as well. But, you know, there were a lot of issues surrounding Mike Tyson going into that fight. You know, issues that his trainer, Aaron Snow, was well aware of. You know, issues that surfaced not long before the fight in sparring when he was dropped by Greg Page. You know, legal troubles, the divorce with Robin Givens. There were many reasons to believe Tyson uh, wasn't going to be at his mental prime going into that fight. Yeah, but no one expected any of that to surface against the likes of James Buster Douglas, who's was already uh, beaten four times previously to Tyson, I believe, and was stopped by Tony Tucker for a vacant title and in, in his only significant fight up to that uh, date against Tyson. So, you know, there there are some parallels, but you know, if you really look at it, Tyson definitely got beat fair and square. But you know, he he was uh, he was on the beginning of the end in terms of his downward trail of, uh, of, of the chain of events that uh, swarmed over his life. I think that's true. And of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, and uh, no one knew it at the time, but he was in fact past his peak. Uh, in retrospect, we can identify that the, the Mike Tyson's peak was, um, 1987, 1988, his performances against uh, Tyrell Biggs, Larry Holmes, Michael Spinks, that was when he was at his most deadly. And um, that version of Mike Tyson, I think, gives most, if not all, heavyweight champions in history a very difficult challenge. Um, but then everything fell apart. And it has a lot to do with uh, Customato's death. It has a lot to do with Don King. Um, it has a lot to do with Robin Givens. But at the time, of course, people on the outside looking in, they could not, they could never have uh, anticipated how quickly everything was going to fall apart for Mike. Um, but yes, looking back, we, it's, it's very easy to see that, in fact, he was right for the picking. And it just so happened James Buster Douglas was inspired, he was motivated, and he had the he had the tools. He had the height, he had the reach, he had the excellent jab, and he walked into that ring with absolutely no pressure on him whatsoever, and he executed. He performed the best performance of his career without question, and uh, the rest is history. Yeah, it was a truly terrific performance by James Buster Douglas to win the heavyweight championship of the world, which... Um, in another fight for the heavyweight championship of the world, the fightcity.com will cover smoking Joe Frazier's victory over Jimmy Ellis to win the vacant heavyweight championship of the world after uh, that long tournament, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yes, this is a very significant fight, historically speaking, uh, in a lot of different ways. Um, February 16th, uh, 1970, and of course, Muhammad Ali have been champions since uh, 1964. Um, no, pardon me. Uh, am I correct? 1964. That sounds about right. All right. And uh, Ali had beaten Liston. He'd beaten a number of top contenders, Ernie Terrell, Floyd Patterson, George Chevallo. But the big uh, event that was defining his career at that point was his refusal to uh, respond, uh, to answer the call of the draft, the military draft, and join the war in Vietnam. Um, and so Ali had been stripped of his title. He'd been stripped of his license to box. He could not compete. And uh, the WBA held a tournament to try and decide a successor. And the final fight in the tournament was Joe Frazier versus Jimmy Ellis. And in fact, Joe Frazier by that time had already um, achieved a great deal of recognition by different organizations with his win, his knockout win over Buster Mathis. So a number of different athletic commissions and, and so on uh, were recognizing Joe as the top heavyweight, but with the knockout over Jimmy Ellis, he sealed the deal. And one of the interesting aspects of this fight was that Muhammad Ali very graciously officially retired before the Frazier Ellis fight, so as to um, wipe the slate clean basically, and, and let that match be for the undisputed heavyweight championship of the world. Uh, subsequently, he wouldn't necessarily be so gracious as, as he loved to point out that he was still undefeated. He was still, quote unquote, the people's champ. Um, but uh, for all intents and purposes, Frazier versus Ellis was for the heavyweight championship of the world. And it was uh, another excellent performance by Joe Frazier. And um, it's just a, another opportunity to remind ourselves of the greatness of Joe Frazier, with that, which I think gets overlooked. Um, in my opinion, uh, Frazier is one of the top heavyweight champions of all time uh, because yeah. he, he competed in the best heavyweight division of all time. And the only person who did better than him during that era was Muhammad Ali. Well, guess what? The only man to beat Muhammad Ali when he was in his prime or very close to his prime is Joe Frazier yep. in the first fight in 1971. And um, our, uh, the site's uh, top 12 all-time best heavyweights list gets a lot of knocks, uh, <laughs> which is fun. And you can go and check it out and see the comments. There's a whole whack of them. And a lot <laughs> of them have to do with Mike Tyson because Mike Tyson is not on our top 12 all-time greatest heavyweights. And then a lot of comments are about the fact that we rate Joe Frazier above George Foreman, which seems counterintuitive for most people. Uh, logically speaking, how does that make sense? Because George Foreman knocked out Joe Frazier not once, but twice. Yeah. But when you look at the career accomplishments, when you look at the whole picture, um, we decided that, in fact, Joe Frazier deserves to be ranked higher than George Foreman, which brings me to a fascinating column that we published uh, the other week called The Case Against Big George by Michael Ezra, and where he lays out why he personally feels that George Foreman is overrated as a great heavyweight. It's a very interesting column, a lot of food for thought. And, and one of the key points is that, in his opinion, Joe Frazier, the, the, the knockout win over Joe Frazier is overrated. It, it really doesn't carry as much significant significance as most people think, simply because Joe Frazier was essentially made to order for George Foreman. He was too small. He was a That's slow true. starter. And uh, and so in, in Michael Ezra's opinion, uh, not too much weight should be given to that victory. It's an interesting argument. And um, 
as always, you can find these provocative articles and pieces uh, in only one place, and that's the fightcity.com. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I stand by I stand by the ranking of Joe Frazier as in terms of his record and who he beat. Um, overall, I think his you know in terms of of the long view, looking back into heavyweight history, he does deserve to be regarded as a better heavyweight champion than George Foreman. And the key, the key point, of course, is that huge win, one of the greatest performances in boxing history, one of the most significant victories in all of boxing history, his 15-round win over Muhammad Ali in 1971. Well, I think you hit it on the nose earlier and that Frazier fought in perhaps the best era in heavyweight boxing history. And not only did he fight in it and achieve great success in it, but he did so as a relatively undersized heavyweight. You know, he was a guy that gave up a lot of height and reach to the likes of Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. I mean, he's a heavyweight that in his prime, I don't think he was over 210 pounds, uh, which is not super unusual for a 1970s heavyweight, but you know, he was still giving up uh, quite a bit of size and range to the guys that he ended up beating, including Muhammad Ali. Uh, I do agree with you stating that Frazier was made to order for George Foreman. Uh, George Foreman's victory over Joe Frazier was not the best indicator of Foreman being a better fighter than Joe Frazier. It was just more or less Foreman having the style to run through Joe Frazier. I mean, Joe Frazier... Um, it's important to note that you know he he was hurt as well in in fights against Oscar Bonavina, Muhammad Ali, of course. Uh, I'm not sure. Did Jerry Corey ever hurt Joe Frazier? I, I I forget. They landed so many punches on each other; it was hard to keep track. <laughs> I don't know that he ever seriously hurt him. Uh, uh, in my recollection, no. Uh, Frazier's chin was pretty solid. Yeah. Uh, but but definitely he felt the best shots of Corey. I mean. They they went toe to toe. They gave uh, their first uh, fight. Uh, fight of the year. Exactly. I was just gonna say that. I think 1960, uh, 66, I'm not sure. Um, but it was it was fight of the year, and uh, they fought again in the 1970s, and and Frazier stopped Corey again. Um, Jerry Corey was a terrific fighter. Uh, that was that was. You know, the same logic and the same judgment that people used when they were talked about Jerry Quarry after he retired, which was, uh, if only he hadn't come along during the era of Muhammad Ali and, and Joe Frazier and George Foreman and so on. I mean, it was a stacked heavyweight division. Uh, there's just so many terrific fighters. And again, the only fighter, the only man who did better who has better results from that era um, than Joe Frazier is Muhammad Ali. And, and that's why and that's, that's a key thing, to, a key point to remember. I mean, George Foreman never fought Jerry Quarry and it's, and it's, and he admits it. He didn't want to fight Jerry Quarry. Um, just as, as one example. Well, I, I think he would have knocked out Jerry Corey or, or seriously hurt him nonetheless, but it would be a rough fight. You know, if Corey was able to get out of the first few rounds. Well, don't forget, Corey knocked out Ernie Shavers in the first, first round. Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he knocked out a number of big punchers. Um, you know, who's to say? Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's it's always uh, interesting to remember the 1970s. I mean, Ken Norton, Ron Lyle. I mean, it was just a stacked uh, uh, division at that time. Definitely. Joe Frazier, one of the greatest heavyweights of all time. And according to Josh Izzard's top 12 Philadelphia list, the number two greatest Philadelphia fighter of all time, right behind Bernard Hopkins at number one. Uh, that too might upset a few people as, you know, we kind of get conditioned to think of Joe Frazier as the greatest Philadelphia fighter of all time. And, you know, some people, when they think of Bernard Hopkins and his antics and his holding, especially late in his career, they, they get turned off by him and, uh, and, and rightly so in some instances, but it's very easy to overlook the fact that Hopkins is one of the most accomplished fighters of this generation, 20 defenses at middleweight, uh, just um, moving up to 175 and his just his victory over Antonio Tarver uh, at the time, such a stunning victory considering Tarver's 
knockout over Roy Jones uh, not far before that and his victory over uh, Jones in the third fight and Glenn Johnson. Hopkins destroyed him. And then Hopkins, off of that, went on to beat um, Kelly Pavlik was another huge shocker. I, I don't know many who were picking Hopkins to win that fight. And then Hopkins becoming the oldest champion in boxing history by beating Jean Pascal uh, in their second fight. So Bernard Hopkins, I think rightly, is ranked the greatest Philadelphia fighter of all time. Uh, of course, he's not the same crowd-pleasing fighter that Joe Frazier was, but uh, a true great nonetheless. What are your takes of Josh Desert's top 12 Philadelphia list? Well, it's an idiosyncratic list and... You know, the top 12 uh, section on the website is, is, I think, one of the most interesting sections because, you know, there's a lot of a lot of fun to be had looking at these lists and discussing them and debating them. And this is very much Josh's personal take on the top 12 greatest Philly champions. Um and and uh, there's definitely some big names not there. Like, for example, Jeff Chandler uh, arguably should definitely be on the top 12. Midget Walgast, one of the all-time great flyweights, um, mm-hmm. he's not there. You know, but this, but Josh wanted to do a list that was very much about his own personal take. I mean, he has Jersey Joe Walcott at number three on the list. Well, Walcott, he was not a Philadelphia fighter. He was a New Jersey fighter. But Josh's take is that, you know, the, uh, the areas around uh, Camden, uh, New Jersey, and so on, which is just right across the river from Philadelphia. I mean, it's almost part of yeah. the city. You know, his, his per- and he lives, this is the key thing to remember. I mean, Josh is a, is a, is a Philly guy. So you have to trust his, his take on this to some degree. And so, again, it's an idiosyncratic list. It's his personal take. And, uh, you know, so it's kind of fun to, to debate and argue about these things. Um, but he makes a very, very convincing case in the, in, the, in the list about why Hopkins has to be number one. And, you know, you look at Hopkins' life, you look at the whole story. Uh, he came out of prison. And in terms of top 12 Philly champions, I mean, that's the thing that Josh emphasizes yeah. How how can anybody be greater than Bernard Hopkins when all he did for so many years was just win one championship fight after another? I mean, uh, in addition to all his title wins uh, at middleweight, he then moved up and and won uh, titles against uh, Ant- Antonio Tarver and and uh, Jean Pascal, as you mentioned. I mean, it's quite a run. Um, and so in terms of of championships in terms of belts in terms of uh of championship wins there's no one uh who can compete with bernard hopkins in that category joe frazier is is maybe in, in other respects the quintessential philadelphia fighter i mean rocky balboa who of course is a fictional character he has a statue uh on those steps, those famous steps at the art gallery in Philadelphia. Well, it was Joe Frazier who in real life actually ran up those steps. It was Joe Frazier who in real life mm-hmm. uh, punched slabs of beef in, in, a, in, a, in a slaughterhouse. Um, so there's aspects of the Joe Frazier story which make him the quintessential Philadelphia fighter. But uh, in terms of the top Philadelphia champions, well, yeah, it, it's it's hard to argue against Bernard Hopkins. Yeah, it, it really is. I mean, Bernard Hopkins, the, the great thing about Hopkins, a guy who got started boxing at a relatively late age, went to prison, had to become a prison champion rather than an Olympic gold medal champion like Joe Frazier. You know, Hopkins, you can see early in his career, kind of learning on the job. You know, he, he didn't look so great against Roy Jones in his first title shot. He lost that fight, rightfully so. He lost his pro debut against Clinton Mitchell, uh, whoever that is. Um, and, and he had a draw in his second title shot against Serhundo Mercado, in which he was dropped twice. But, you know, gradually after he beat Mercado in the rematch and he got victories over Glenn Johnson, Simon Brown, uh, all the way up to his masterpiece performance against Felix Trinidad. And I mean, masterpiece. I don't think I've, you know, as a kid watching uh, 
Hopkins versus Trinidad used to be probably my favorite fight to watch just to just to learn all the tricks of the game. Hopkins did so much in the first phase of his career at middleweight. As I said, learning on the job, getting to the level that he got to. And then when he brought it to light heavyweight, it was almost as if he had a whole new phase of his career. He just turned over a completely new leaf. You know, we thought after his two losses to Jermaine Taylor that he was done. You know, he's he's too old. He was over 40. Uh, you know, his mother told him not to pat to fight past 40. I think uh, I think that might have been one of her dying wishes. I'm not sure if I'm incorrect there. Uh, but he did so, and and uh, all of a sudden he's back on the top of the sport again with wins over Antonio Tarver and Kelly Pavlik and Pascal, as we mentioned earlier. So this is a guy who's just full of accomplishments, and whether or not he did them um, in all the uh, most crowd-pleasing manners is, is another story, but you know, certainly uh, one of the most accomplished fighters of this generation, right along with uh, Floyd Mayweather and, and Roy Jones Jr. I agree, and uh, again, people can go and check out the the list. It's an it's a fun list by Josh, and they can check out all the interesting top twelve lists. I don't even I don't know how many we've got, but it's a lot. And uh, so, if you like rankings and lists of all different categories, we have the um, not too long ago we did the top twelve greatest opening rounds of all time. We've done the top twelve greatest southpaws. Uh, all the major weight divisions. Uh, you can have a lot of fun. You can while away a lot of hours uh, checking out all the top 12 lists at thefightcity.com. Yep. There's its own tab on the top of the website, all the great 12, top 12 lists. Uh, you've mentioned plenty. Top 12 all-time greatest Mexican boxers of all time. Top 10 most intimidating boxers. Top 12. Uh, top 12. All the the top 12. Yep. Yeah. I must have said top 10. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> top 12. Got it for, you can't, you can't forget those championship rounds. Can you? No, no, that's, that's, that's what makes it a little different. Yeah. Yep. We should, we should, uh, I don't know, trademark it or something. <laughs> so, uh, what's next on the fightcity.com this coming week, Michael? Well, as mentioned, we got Frazier versus Ellis and, uh, we've got some other history posts coming up. Uh, I've got all kinds of stuff I'm editing. I got an exclusive interview with uh, one of the more prominent referees in the game uh, that's that's on deck. Um, I've got different people waiting on me to, to get their content uh, all whipped into shape and then published on the on the site. Uh, different people are helping me, including you, Alden, and uh, and I appreciate all the help I can get. Uh, as every single day, we try to serve up something fresh on the fightcity.com. So all I can say is everybody should be, uh, uh, making, making a point of every day, checking in and seeing what's new, uh, on, uh, an independent website that, uh, uh, I like to think is, um, uh, pretty unique. There's, there's no other boxing website quite like the fightcity.com. Definitely. Fightcity.com based out of Montreal, but covers the whole world of boxing, including the history of boxing, uh, plenty of great personalities, plenty of great writers on the fight city. Highly encourage everyone to check it out and also check out the fight city podcast that we record pretty regularly on the site as well. So, Michael, that just about wraps it up for this being episode 14, I think, of the Fight City podcast. It's been a lot of fun. I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thanks, Alden.